0: Hey there, friends, and welcome to Just the Zoo of Us. We here at the Weatherford Home are super busy bees this time of year, between traveling to see family and preparing for the holidays. So this week, I am bringing back a festive episode from two years ago. This is episode 79, in which I spoke with my friend, ecologist and science communicator Olivia de Bersier about reindeer. Before we get into it, super quick, if you are looking for something new to listen to, I recommend heading over to the Pangolin Podcast. For the holiday special that I had the pleasure of being part of. Longtime listeners of our show will recognize the voices of Jack Baker from our Pangolin episode, Vikram Baliga from our Plants episode, and Ashley Bray from our Great Horned Owl episode. We got together to talk about conservation success stories from this year and have a very fun and festive chat about nature. It was hilarious and delightful and uplifting. and here is a clip from the show to give you a little peek under the tree. This is part of the conversation in which we were asked what animals or plants we would like to add to the suite of Christmas traditions. New nature things to bring into Christmas, yes. actually. I think alternatively from Ellen's idea, I would like to bring
1: raccoons in. But oh, I would yeah. like to bring raccoons in similar to Elf on the Shelf where they steal <sighs> things and mess up your Christmas decorations.
0: I, I love that. Love they got little it. hands mm-hmm. for messing stuff up. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> and they've got, like, the built-in little burglar masks and, like... Yes. Yes. Yep. Nailed it. Very mischievous. Yeah. Oh. That's it.
1: You I could, like, Get them You a could sp- do
0: that thing where you, like, instead of leaving an actual physical, like, doll in the position, you could leave little, like, paw prints, like, do, like, little stamps of paw <gasps> prints adorable. around. That's mm-hmm.
1: adorable. I thought you were going to say real raccoons. Instead of <laughs> the fake you things, bring, a bring a just a real raccoon. <laughs> in your house. <laughs>
0: Merry Christmas. Here's a bunch of raccoons. Here's rabies and raccoon roundworm. Enjoy. Now for our show. Olivia joined me to talk about reindeer, which are also known as caribou. We talked about what makes them so well-suited to the chilly climates they thrive in, from the tips of their impressive antlers all the way down to their clicky hooves, plus what it's like to work with them and the threats they're facing in their natural habitats. So bundle up and get cozy. Just the Zoo of Us presents Reindeer with Olivia de Bercier. this is ellen weatherford i am here as usual with just the zoo of us and this week we have a new friend we're here talking to olivia de say hi olivia hi everyone And this week we're talking about caribou. Caribou are are reindeer, yes? Same thing?
1: Yes, they are the same thing, kind of. Same species, technically, same species.
0: All right, excellent. We're in the right Mm (laughs) ballpark. So before we talk about caribou, why don't you just take a second to let us know who you are and what you do and kind of how you got into your work? Yeah, absolutely. So um, as you said, my name is Olivia de Bercier. I
1: am from Canada. I'm, I'm finishing up my Bachelor of Science in Environmental and Conservation Science at the University of Alberta. And yeah, I'm just at the start of my career. So I don't have a particular species focus yet, but I do love basically all wildlife. I find them wonderful. I live in a city with really beautiful wildlife and a, a gorgeous park system, lots of wetlands around and things like that. Um, it's kind of in the middle of the Canadian prairies, get into the boreal forest a little north. A bit about my background, I worked and volunteered at the Edmonton Valley Zoo for seven years. So uh, I really love animal care and, and learned so much about wildlife. And a lot of my job there was as an interpreter. So my job was to tell people about the animals, which was like my favorite thing to do ever. As <laughs> as <laughs> yes, you know, Helen, That's what we're doing right now. It's the best job ever. Um, and yeah, ever since then I've tried really hard to do science communication, whatever I, I do. So I, I did some writing for my school paper and stuff like that regarding sort of science communication. And in an effort to push that a little further, my friend Sophia and I, who met at that school paper. We started a podcast called Beyond Blathers. So each week we talk about uh, fish, fossil, or bug that you can find in the popular Nintendo quarantine <laughs> game, Animal Crossing. So it's like 5% Animal Crossing and 95% geeking out
0: about animals because they're the best. The Animal Crossing is like a springboard.
1: Yeah, it's it's like the inspiration. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I and mean, we talk about what they look like uh, in real life and what they do and what their deal is. Um, or in the case of the fossils, what they were like.
0: It's really cute, by the way. I <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I was listening to the snapping turtle episode earlier, and it was really cute and just really lovely. So it's, it's very fun. <laughs> oh, I'm glad to hear that. Yeah,
1: I mean, I talk about bugs a lot on there. And I guess if I did have a specialty, it would probably be in insects, um, just because it was sort of by luck. Like I'm interested in everything and I happen to have some profs who were really wonderful and supportive and were like, hey, want to do some cool bug things? And I said, yes, of course I do. So I've, uh, you know, helped with some pollinator research and uh, I spent the summer sort of like picking through a whole bunch of beetle specimens from New Caledonia, which was really cool. And yeah, so that's kind of my background a little bit.
0: Hi, it's me from now in 2022. Like I mentioned at the top, this episode was recorded back in 2020. So I checked back in with Olivia and she let me know that she is now a master's student at the University of Alberta, where she studies bugs called water boatmen and aquatic beetles. So go Olivia! Okay, back to the episode. But I mean, today we're not talking about bugs. Today we get to talk about
1: some charismatic
0: megafauna. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I know, that's always really exciting, and I'm really hyped because it is a type of charismatic megafauna that lives very far away from me. It, you know, I, so I live in Florida where it is very, very hot, and this is not the sort of place where you could very uh, feasibly keep a caribou. So it's not exactly the type of animal you could just roll up to your local zoo and see around here. <laughs> they would not be having a fantastic time down here in Florida. Have you worked with caribou at the zoos that you've worked at? Yeah I have I've worked with domestic reindeer so um yeah
1: as I mentioned before and I'll I'll get into it later but they are the same species And they're, they're lovely. They're a little cheeky sometimes. During some seasons, they can be a little like pushier, Um, but they're lovely and they have the best snoots ever. They're just like, their little noses are so soft. Oh my gosh. (laughs) Yeah. So we'll take them for walks and stuff around the zoo. And I used to do like the reindeer talk and that was always really fun. So yeah, I do really like working with, with caribou. They, I mean, I guess technically they were reindeer, but they were, yeah, really beautiful animals and a lot like, Kind of domestic farm animals in in their personality, a little tougher. They had a very strict social hierarchy, so it was kind of cute because like some seasons, one of the reindeer would like break an antler and they'd be like bullied a little bit and be the bottom of the heap, and then the next year they'd have the best rack of antlers. So you're like
0: rooting for them, <laughs> a glow up, <laughs> a little glow up, yeah, exactly. Am I thinking correctly in that Sven? From Frozen is a reindeer, yes? Yes, yes,
1: uh, he is. And it, it caused a lot of confusion because reindeer are so much smaller than everyone thinks they are. And I think it's because of Frozen because in Frozen, the the reindeer is like the size of an elk, like a large, almost like a horse. Well, I don't know if people ride on reindeer, actually domestic reindeer, but I know that there's reindeer races, but I think they're pulled on sleds but they're quite small. They're like four to five feet high at the shoulder. They come up to like almost my hip when, you know, you're walking, feeding them or whatever. It's their antlers that make them look really big. So yeah,
0: they're they're surprisingly not that big. That is, I've already learned something. Yeah, it's it surprises everyone. <laughs> <laughs> That's something that like, you know, we before we hit record, we were chatting. And also when Christian and I did an episode where we talked about the, the moose, something that we talked about was how they're much bigger <laughs> mm-hmm. than you might think they are if you haven't seen one in context. But this seems to be the opposite sort of phenomenon. Like, like you see them in a context of like, maybe you see them around trees, and you don't really understand how big the trees are so you might make an assumption about like oh they look to be about this tall they're really little i think it's also
1: because like so often they're in the tundra and in the tundra there's like really low shrubbery um or it's just snowy so there's nothing for you to have like a size comparison to it's like muskox you see pictures of muskox those things look massive like bison but they're
0: really small so you mentioned that like there's domestic reindeer and there's also wild Caribou. What is the purpose of the domestic reindeer? Like, what are they doing? Are they used to pull things, or like, what's their job?
1: That's a good question. Um, I'll admit I didn't research that super, but well, but what I do know is that sort of to give a summary of what the difference is, like their their Latin name is Rangifer tarandus. So that species, when it's in northern Europe and Asia, they're called reindeer. Versus in North America, the ones that are native to North America are caribou. So yeah, same species, different subspecies. The reindeer were domesticated by, I believe it was the Sami who, um, indigenous people in Scandinavia who domesticated them. It may have also been another group, but I know them for sure. I believe they're used for meat... Um they're also used to like yeah pull things. I know they do races with them as I said before. Um, they're used for a lot of a lot of things. Like I th- their fur too I think can be used. I know um in terms of like indigenous people in Canada, they're useful for so many things. <laughs> um like their antlers can be sculpted and everything like yeah, they're a very like versatile species and have a very long historical link with humans as well.
0: Right. I know they're (laughs) heavily referenced in our folklore, especially surrounding Christmas. Mm -hmm, Definitely. You mentioned that they're kind of cheeky. Do they have Mm -hmm. like kind of an attitude? Yeah. um, There were
1: like a couple reindeer who would definitely like to sort of challenge your authority um, if you're coming in and just like, picking up their poop um so they'd like to come and just sort of like push you around with their antlers and you had to kind of like grab their antlers and sort of basically push them away using their antlers um <laughs> which like looked really aggressive but I mean they do that with each other all the time so yeah they could be a little cheeky and like when you're walking them sometimes they just like don't want to go a place and you just gotta roll with it and
0: if they're not in the mood to be walking they'll let you know <laughs> since I do want to get more into like their antlers and really cool stuff about them. Let's go ahead and get started with our ratings, which is what we do on this particular podcast. If this is your first time listening, what we do is we rate our animals out of 10 in three categories and the first category is effectiveness. So for us, effectiveness is physical adaptations. So these are like things that are built in, like physiological things about the animal's body that let it do a really really good job of the things it's trying to do. So this is an herbivore, right? So these might be things that it has to protect itself from predators and things that it does to find food sources or stay safe or just anything that's trying to do that its body is well suited for. So what would you give the caribou for effectiveness?
1: Oh man, I would give them a 10 out of 10. Their (laughs) Arctic adaptations are legendary. They're so good. (laughs) so I'll, I'll start with their nose because I mentioned it before and how cute and fluffy it is. Their nose has a great sense of smell and they can actually smell for their lichen, which is what they eat in the winter under like a foot and a half or a meter and a half of snow, half a meter of snow, pardon me. So yeah, excellent sense of smell. What is lichen? <laughs> oh yeah, lichen. Um, It's like, a, it's like the stuff you see growing on rocks often and trees. It's, Often very leafy. It's not quite a plant. It's like a fungi and an algae symbiotic relationship. I think I'm gonna I'm gonna let you in on the secret. I don't know my plants. I don't know my <laughs> like not wildlife very well. But I'm pretty sure that's that's the botanical definition of it. But yeah, it's usually very like flaky and hard. And um, sometimes it's like the yellow stuff on trees that you see. So that's that's what they're eating in the winter because of course there's not like grass or leaves out there for them. So and it's pretty amazing that they can even eat that because most there's not a lot of wildlife out there that eat lichen because they're really hard to digest and they're not very nutrient rich. So the caribou are also well adapted because they can digest that. They, they have the ability to do that and they can survive off of those nutrients for the winter. Um, so when spring comes then, of course, they're going to be eating everything green um, that they can that has all the good like protein and nitrogen in it. But yeah, for the winter, that's what they're doing. But speaking of the cold, <laughs> so their nose, they've got like a very distinctive feature of reindeer and caribous. They've got this very like long snout and they've got these large nasal, nasal turbinates, which are basically like the tubes in their nose that will heat up air as they breathe in. So they're not getting like brain freeze on those really, really cold days, which I think is kind of cool. And I wish I had that. Definitely gets cold (laughs) here. So, but yeah, it's amazing. And then their eyes, they can see in like ultraviolet light. So they can see different spectrums than we can. And what this helps with is it helps them to see. So basically objects which absorb ultraviolet light will appear black or dark um, against a surface like snow. So. Um, If there's something like fur, so maybe a predator like a wolf nearby, they're going to see that a lot better. They can also see the lichen better and they are thought to even be able to see urine on snow better. And this could be useful in the sense that it might give them an indicator if there's a predator nearby or maybe competitors. So, yeah, kind of neat. That's really cool. (laughs) Yeah, it's a very cool thing. And the other cool thing that I, I learned actually just researching for this episode was that They also have something called a tapetum lucidum, and that's sort of a reflective disc in their eyes. It's kind of like in cats. If a cat ever looks at you and its eyes look like yellow, that's that disc reflecting back at you. It helps them to see in the dark. And with reindeer, that will be sort of orangey in the summer. And it helps them reflect a lot of that light because they're getting so much daylight up in the Arctic um, because the days are longer in the summer. And then in the winter, that's going to turn much darker and it helps them to absorb more light into their eye when it's
0: like eternal darkness in the winter in the arctic i'm feeling like this maybe would imply that they might not have needed that glowing red nose like <laughs> i feel like that was just overkill like i feel like you know oh yeah it's dark it's like foggy and stuff they're yeah like, okay fine <laughs> they're like we we can deal with this this is not a problem <laughs> like i have like x-ray night vision yeah we'll be fine <laughs> That's exactly right. Yeah.
1: Like, I think they were just fine. I think Rudolph could have just gone and not had a job, just been unemployed. He could have just had a day off. He could have yeah. just had some rest and cared for himself. I mean, I guess it like helps other people see them, like headlights be like, hey, we're coming. So
0: maybe, maybe the framing needs to be changed a bit there. <laughs> I didn't think there would be anything special about their eyesight. So that's really, really cool. You know, you wouldn't think that because they don't seem like,
1: Usually you think like hunters or something or like predators are going to need really good eyesight. But yeah, I mean, in, in cases like if there's um a snowstorm, they have to be able to navigate somehow. So they've got, I mean, they also have like good hearing and good smell. So they've got a lot going for them in that sense. So you
0: mentioned their antlers and we've mentioned this before, but you could probably go a little bit deeper into this. When we say antlers, this is different from horns, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. It's like a different thing.
1: Yeah. So in the case of antlers, so going back to the sort of taxonomy, reindeer and caribou are part of the family cervidae. They're a deer, um, as their name suggests. And in deer, there's things like moose, elk, white-tailed deer. So the the kind of traditional deer we know. And they will have antlers. Those antlers are forked. So they've got sort of that, like, you know, if you're pretending to be a moose and you put your hands up, splayed on your head, you've got forks. Unlike horns, which will have just like one point usually, and those antlers are going to fall off every year. So that's something really significant. Horns shouldn't be falling off, (laughs) Um, ideally. So, yeah, that's that's a really important feature about the antlers. And caribou are the only member of the deer family where both the males and the females have antlers. Usually just the males would have antlers in the deer family. And and not all necessarily reindeer caribou females are going to have antlers. Sometimes they just don't. But most of the time they do, which is a really cool feature. And they also have the largest antlers compared to their body size of any of the members of the deer family. So (laughs) really big antlers, especially with like the barren ground caribou, which are the ones in the tundra. Um, Now these antlers, so they'll fall off. In the case of the males they fall off in the fall right after mating season because that's when they need them to like combat each other and get those ladies and then the females will actually hold on to their antlers past mating season because they're going to want to defend themselves pretty well. They want to be like the dominant characters in their herd. Kind of going back to my experience at the zoo, the ones with the biggest antlers, they got to push all the other reindeer around. And so they'll carry their antlers into basically once they've had their, their calves and, and shortly after having their calves, they'll drop them off some more in the spring, summer. And the process of growing them, they want to grow them really, really quickly because, of course, they're dropping them off every year. And as they grow, they'll be kind of fluffy and soft and that's velvet that's coating them. And the velvet has blood vessels in it, and it's helping to carry all the blood nutrients up into the antler. And once the antler is fully grown, it gets kind of itchy, they get irritated, and they just want to, like, scratch their antlers on literally any surface they can. And it'll look, like, really bloody and gruesome because the blood vessels, of course, are shedding off. And it doesn't necessarily hurt them, it's just that blood vessels <laughs> that are peeling off.
0: Oh, I hate that. It's, like, <laughs> if
1: you search up pictures, it's pretty nasty looking. And, like, I
0: don't think I'll be doing that. Yeah, you don't have to.
1: <laughs> if you have like a morbid curiosity. But yeah, so they'll they'll peel off and then they've got ideally like nice clean antlers. And it's thought that this is done because it's like not really energy efficient to keep the velvet on. So yeah, that's that's how the antlers work, which I think is amazing. It's actually, I think, a form of uh controlled bone cancer. That is causing that antler formation, which is really cool. And so there is some research going on relating to like cancer research and how that works. Whoa. Yeah. That is really cool. Oh, and I need to <laughs> dispel some some myths here. Yes, please do. Please, please, please. The number of forks on an antler does not indicate the age of the animal. It does, however. So every year that they grow an antler back, um, especially with males, those are going to get bigger and bigger as they're older. Uh, so in some cases, once they're older and their antlers are bigger, they're going to have new forks. But counting them doesn't necessarily tell you how old they are. I've never heard that before.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's a question I got all the time at the zoo. I was like, no, it's <laughs> <is> not true. <laughs> it's That's fam. wild. Yeah. I've never heard that one. I guess all we have around here are like deer. I think some people use that for deer too, unlike any antler species. And you mentioned earlier that, like, sometimes one will have, like, small antlers one season and then big antlers the next. In the case of those guys, it's because they, like, grew them
1: and then they did something dumb and broke a piece of it off. Uh, so then then it would be smaller. I suppose if, if an animal didn't, though, get, like, good nutrition um, as they're growing, it it might be smaller or they had some sort of, like, weakness in their system. That could definitely happen. They're also not symmetrical a lot of the time. (gasps) Really? Yeah, a lot of the time like one of them will have almost like a chunk of antler that's like in the front in this and it'll kind of be if you're thinking of like a caribou antler it's very like curved and then there's gonna be a chunk that sticks out in the front kind of like a big hand and That's useful to, like, shovel snow out of the way. Interestingly enough, um, their name, caribou, is thought to come from the word zalabu, which is a a Mi'kmaq indigenous word, which means snow shoveler or uh, the one who paws. So like the one who like digs the snow the way, which I think is lovely. But yeah, the, the antler will not always be symmetrical. So there might be that chunk that sticks out in front. Is that what they're, are they shoveling snow with their antlers? Is that something they do? Yeah, sometimes if they need to get to the lichen at the bottom. Yeah, they'll use that. They'll use their hooves as well. Their hooves are another amazing adaptation Their hooves will be like quite sharp on the edge and they're very like splayed out so that they're able to sort of have like snowshoes basically walking on the snow, have a bit better grip. But the bottom of the hoof, sorry, I'm like doing a lot of hand gestures here for an audio, (laughs) but imagine you've cupped your hand and that's part of the hoof. There's kind of this hollow area. There's like a spongy pad there. And in the summer, that's going to kind of inflate and give them like good grip. Uh, for all the walking they're going to do. And then in the winter, it'll kind of contract and it gives them like a really distinct spoon shape. um, And it'll sort of emphasize that ridge, that sharp edge of the hoof. And that'll help them have traction on ice and snow. But it also helps them to be doing things like, yeah, like shoveling snow out of the way to get to their food.
0: Huh. Yeah. That's really cool. It's very cool. This is something that I'm asking because it was something that surprised me about the moose. Can they swim? Can caribou swim? Yes! (gasps) <gasps> they
1: absolutely can. <laughs> oh my God, do they ever. Because they mig- a lot of them migrate um, really huge distances, like literally the longest distance of any terrestrial animal. But we can talk about that later once we get into other stuff. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, really long distances, which means often they're going to have to do river passings or like, yeah, swim through a lot of water. Um, so yeah, their hooves help with that. And then they also have um, their coats will have... Guard hairs sometimes, like in the winter, they'll have like extra long hairs to keep them warm. And those hairs can be hollow and that'll give them a little bit of buoyancy as well as insulation. So it helps them as well in the whole swimming thing. And those long legs too. Oh my gosh. That's really cool. (laughs) Yeah.
0: And like if you search up pictures, they're so cute. They're all like in their herds just swimming through the water. With reindeer having these like impressive antlers and being of considerable size, do they have predators that they need to worry about? Definitely. So, like, the main one,
1: uh, especially the one that we talk about most in managing the populations, are wolves. In the Arctic, they'll, like, follow migrating herds and and hunt those herds. Um, especially in Alberta, where I live, they've become a bit of a, a problem from a managing perspective. I don't like to call them a problem because I don't want to, like, it's not their fault. They're just trying to survive. Uh, but yeah, they'll definitely hunt them. And what's been happening in Alberta? And one of the reasons they're threatened here, and I can talk a bit more about conservation later, but if you look at like a Google Maps of Alberta in the boreal forest, it's crisscrossed. Like there's so many uh, seismic lines, which are basically there for industry and oil exploration. And so Alberta like has a lot of oil industry. Yeah. So what ends up happening is you have these lines of clear cut forest. They're kind of like roads. And what has been happening is there's there's a few factors playing in here. So it makes it a lot easier for deer to start going up into these areas. And especially with climate change, it's getting warmer. So the deer and the moose are going more into the boreal forest where they're interacting with caribou that typically didn't have to interact with a lot of other like deer uh, species. So that's a problem because there can be disease transmission uh, to the caribou that wouldn't otherwise get it. The other problem is with the deer come the wolves. So the wolves are following the deer into these areas where they wouldn't normally be. And, I mean, if they see a caribou, they're gonna eat a caribou. (laughs) Like, they're not gonna be, uh, discriminant there. And so that's been a problem. The other thing is like with these seismic lines, they're basically straight paths of no obstacles. They can see really far down. So the wolves have a much easier time hunting as well. So they can also be predated on by wolverine, lynx, bears sometimes. So ooh, even golden eagles, I've heard, can also <gasps> predate on them. What? Yeah how, how big are these eagles? <laughs> <gasps> oh my gosh, golden <laughs> eagles are massive. The way I've heard them doing this, not with caribou, but with things like bighorn sheep, is they'll like pull the babies off mountain sides. So I wonder, <gasps> I don't know how they hunt on caribou, but I wonder if it's like the mountainous caribou, if those are the ones that are getting predated on. And I'm sure it wouldn't be like a full size caribou, although who knows? It might be the younger ones. <laughs> that would be a very uh, ambitious eagle. Those eagles though are... are- massive they are honking big
0: I, I know that you said that like the antlers are more for fighting each other <laughs> but like at least i've got something yeah it is a, also defense too i mean the main
1: purpose is yeah that sort of social uh, i guess interest specific combat but yeah they can definitely use it as defense too
0: hey there we are going to take a quick break to hear from a couple of the other shows on the maximum fun network when we get back we're going to rate ingenuity and aesthetics for reindeer so stick around
1: Hi everyone, I'm Ella McLeod. And I'm Alexis B. Preston. And we host a show called Comfort Creatures, the show for every animal lover, be it a
0: creature of scales, six legs, fur, feathers, or fiction. Comfort Creatures is a show for people who prefer their friends to have paws instead of hands. Unless they are raccoon
1: hands, that is okay. That is absolutely okay, yeah. Yes. Every Thursday, we will be talking to guests about their pets, learning about pets in history, art, and even fiction. Plus, we'll discover differences between pet ownership across the pond. It's going to be a hoot on Maximum Fun. Hi, everybody. My name is Justin McElroy. And I'm Sydney McElroy. Dr. Sydney McElroy. That, that is true. It's important in this context because we host a medical history podcast called Sawbones. Sawbones. Oh, I thought we were going to, we shouldn't work on that. Sawbones. Sawbones isn't afraid to ask the hard-hitting questions. Like, are vaccines as safe and reliable as they want us to believe? Yes. Do I have to get a flu shot? Yes. Uh, okay. Is science a miracle? No. We have a lot of great history for you and a lot of laughs. And sometimes the history is so bad that there's no laughs. But you'll learn something, you'll feel something. And it's always sawbones. That's right. Every week on <laughs> MaximumFun.org.
0: I want to talk a little bit more about their... Like social dynamics and and Mm -hmm. things like that and things that they're doing so I would like to transition into our next category to rate the caribou and this is ingenuity and so for us on this show ingenuity is behavioral adaptations that are things the animal is doing that let it solve the problems it faces so this is just you know ways that they're behaving that are letting them overcome the obstacles they face on a daily basis so what would you give the caribou for ingenuity
1: you know i'm gonna give them a lower rating i'm gonna say like a 7.5 and 8 and it's not necessarily their fault i think it's just there's a lot of climate change happening and they're just not quite able to change fast enough to avoid a lot of problems and so not their fault but i'm that's that's the rating i'm gonna give
0: that's still a passing score yeah
1: like they're still pretty good they they had a really solid plan before we came along. So (laughs) I mean, they have a really cool behavior, which is that migration that I was talking about before. And not all caribou migrate. For instance, I guess this requires me explaining a little bit about populations and subpopulations, but caribou can be divided into like nine to 13 subpopulations. That includes reindeer, of course, um, depending on who you ask. Subpopulations populations is always a bit of a trippy, tricky topic, but it usually refers to kind of where you're finding that general group of reindeer. And um, if we're looking back in prehistoric times when the reindeer were evolving, they were evolving on Beringia and that's where they lived. And Beringia was the land bridge that once existed between Russia and Alaska. And it's where, you know, all those iconic Ice Age creatures lived. And you had a, a massive ice sheet over Canada and northern North America. And when that ice sheet receded, the caribou went down a bit south. And then the ice sheet came back and kind of split, they think, uh, split the populations in two. And in the south, you had the woodland caribou, which would eventually come into sort of the boreal forest of Canada. Um, and then you had the barren ground caribou, which were further north. Um, and there's subpopulations populations within that, but um, I'm going to be mainly talking about the woodland versus the barren ground. And so the woodland caribou in Alberta, in particular, tend to stay where they are. They don't migrate too much. They're more sedentary. They like to just have their own home there. But the big migrations happen, especially with the, the barren ground caribou and the woodland caribou in the east of Canada, over in Quebec. But these migrations are, like I said, the longest migrations of any terrestrial animal. Some herds will travel over a thousand kilometers in a year. And that's like a straight distance. That's not all the like loop-de-loops they got to do while they're actually walking. As the crow flies. <laughs> yeah. So they'll start in the winter in, in this sort of taiga, which is the more forested area of the north, uh, where it's a bit wind- a little bit warmer, just a bit. And then they'll head north to the tundra for the summer where their calving grounds are. So where they're going to have their babies. The herd sizes will just, I I mean, herds are huge up there or can be huge. They can be up to like 400,000 individuals. So absolutely massive groups of reindeer will, or caribou will be, will be moving up there. Yeah. So once they're at the calving grounds, the females will have their babies. And Um, After a few weeks, those babies should be weaned off the milk and are eating a bit of vegetation and stuff. And they're ready to move because what ends up happening is there's a lot, a lot of bugs up there. And you wouldn't think that bugs would be like a significant issue, but they absolutely are. They're like swarms and swarms of flies and biting flies to the point where they will like push the the caribou to run away and they'll run like
0: kilometers away from these things. I've seen videos of like people doing field work in like Alaska and stuff where it's just like Mm -hmm. a blanket of mosquitoes.
1: Yeah, you need like a net around your body because
0: it's so bad. Yeah. So, I mean, they don't want to hang out there too long
1: and, and they'll keep moving quite a bit. Those calving grounds are really essential though because they are a safer area for them and that's where they find their food. A big problem right now is with climate change, what's happening is the snow melts faster, which means the plants come in faster. So by the time they get up there um, to eat all the plants, that's a shorter period of time that the nutritious material is available to them. So that can be a big problem. And it also means that the flies and the bugs are emerging earlier in the season. So it means that they're going to get harassed a lot more while they're in that process. And that can be a really big problem for them. So I mentioned that kind of as a conservation piece. Um, a little bit of their ecology there
0: you mentioned that they come together in these massive herds of like hundreds of thousands Mm -hmm. of caribou all together. So when they're together in these large gatherings, what degree of hierarchy is there among the caribou that are all like together to have their babies? And, you know, I guess just like, what's the dynamic like between caribou and these large herds?
1: I'm not sure, actually, but I would suspect that if the females still have their antlers, they're probably in charge. Um, I know that in the migration, the females that are pregnant, they go first. (laughs) They're sort of leading that herd. Uh, And all the males and the like yearlings, the young ones are kind of following behind them. Okay.
0: What is the parental care for the baby reindeer? They're called calves, right? Like baby calves? Yeah, the calves, yeah. Like what does the parental care look like for the little reindeer calves? They'll stay with
1: their mom pretty much until they're grown. Um, And even sometimes I've heard that like The calves from the year before will still stay pretty close to their mom as well. Um, Because they definitely don't want to get separated. They don't want any of the younger individuals to get separated from the group because you've got wolves just waiting to pick them up or pick them off. So we've all seen those BBC Earth videos.
0: I know. And and they always set it up in such a way where you feel so conflicted. You're like, I know. You're like, I know Mama Wolf is so hungry and she's got to feed her little puppies. (laughs) But. Come on. (laughs) Oh, they're so fluffy. Oh, and so like lanky the way they run. (laughs) In the reindeer that, or the caribou and the reindeer that you have worked with, how trainable are they? Can you like train them? Like what, what does that look like to work with them? I would say it was like harder
1: than other animals. But that being said, it's like, it was kind of impressive. I mean, they were pretty decently food motivated. We had like, these little cookies for them. They were actually primate cookies, but they they were just like mushed up plant matter. So they liked them. And so the zookeepers, especially on walks, would distract them with the cookies. And in terms of training, the only other training I specifically remember doing was we had one reindeer who needed like chiropractic steps. And so you basically like hold his butt and the zookeeper would like, use a cookie and direct his head. So he'd be bending his head back kind of towards his bum and it would help stretch his muscles. And so that's the training I recall doing with them. I imagine as a domestic animal, you'd probably get a, they'd be relatively easy, easier to train, um, to do things like get a harness on, which was actually, that was something we we had to train them to do as well, was put their head through a harness again with cookies, <laughs> um, just encourage them. So yeah, it, it wasn't too bad. Sometimes I mean, it really depends on the individual. Some individuals hate, like, they would run away and they just wouldn't be in the mood for a walk. Others loved it. They were like, take me out. I'm going to get all those cookies. (laughs) I'm also very cookie motivated, so I can relate to that. I was like, I I get it. I get it, Baldwin. (laughs) Yeah, they were cute.
0: (laughs) I love them. I I do want to know, since you have experience with this and could probably give me a solid answer, are they soft?
1: Mm, That is a really good question. Their nose is soft the rest of their fur is like really oily and coarse
0: Ooh. in in the
1: summer they're softer because in the summer they have like kind of short brown hair that's their undercoat that's exposed and that's a bit softer it's a little bit more like their nose but the like longer hairs are kind of greasy
0: ooh yucky they
1: need a bit of a shower <laughs>
0: <laughs> i was thinking about this because i just recently saw a video of something that apparently is a thing that a lot of people know about that i didn't know about because i live in the southeast <laughs> the sound that this was not a caribou this was an elk but the sound that an elk makes that like like a bugle yeah bugle that's the word elk bugle yeah this like bugling Mm -hmm. sound it's a
1: terrifying sound do reindeers make sounds no thank god no uh sorry (laughs) (laughs) Just kidding. Some people love the sound of elk. It's very... Some people find it like a majestic mountain sound. I don't. I'm kind of like, you sound like you're screaming. It's spooky. It is a very spooky sound. Yeah. When you're camping, you hear that. You're like, this is fine. Um... (laughs) Uh they make like kind of grunting sounds sometimes, but they don't tend to make them that much they're not they're not as vocal as like Elgar where they're announcing their presence to the world
0: they they let their antlers do the talking
1: <laughs> yeah, they do they do i I wanted to mention this they do make a clicking sound when they walk. it's just like little like not not even like that it's a clicking, it's a clicking, and uh it's their tendons that are like rubbing against the bone. <gasps> And all of them do this. Like, if if you ever watch, like, just a video of caribou walking or something, there's no, like, BBC soundtrack behind it, you'll hear that sound. It's very loud. And so people always commented on that when we would be walking them.
0: Huh. And it's not something that is, like, painful to them? No. They all do it. It's just... The way their body is built. Oh, my gosh. I love them. <laughs> I'm very charmed. I hope I get to see one. Oh, they're so lovely. I was thinking about it. I think I may have seen one in a zoo one time when I was a kid and I lived up in Seattle. They're they're pretty good at, like, dealing with a bit of heat, but, like, we definitely would have to put on, like, the sprinkler
1: and stuff for them if it was a hot day. I mean, hot days happen where they live, too. I've never seen a wild caribou. That's been one of my dreams. But, I mean, they're, like, pretty endangered where I live. I guess threatened. If we go with the mm-hmm. category, but unfortunately, uh, there have been a number of populations that have been extirpated, um, even in our national parks. So that's really concerning. It's like, you would think that in a park, that would be the one place that they could maybe survive. But Is that because of environmental changes or is it like predation or what? Yeah, it's a lot of things. So in the parks, I think there's a long history of sort of them getting continuously pushed into a smaller and smaller area. Unfortunately, and quite tragically, one of those populations um, in Jasper National Park, I believe, it was either Jasper or Banff, one of their populations was completely eradicated by a avalanche, oh, which was really no. sad. But it was already a very small population. So the herds that are particularly at risk in Alberta will be like four or five individuals, like can be really small, maybe like 12 Typically with the woodland caribou, which would have been those ones in the parks, a healthy herd might be like 50 to 100, maybe more. It's hard to give like kind of general herd estimates because they can vary quite a bit, but just to give people like a ballpark estimation of how many are in these herds. And I mean, in northern Alberta, those seismic lines are a problem, but also like disturbance from uh, industry activity can be a big problem. Yeah, when you have a population that's really small already, the gene pool is not going to be great and it's going to be kind of hard to have those populations come back. The reason that subpopulations are emphasized so much with caribou is that they don't really move around enough to kind of repopulate themselves when you have those specific subpopulations. So... I guess we can like talk a bit about conservation now more specifically. So IUCN classifies them as vulnerable. In Canada, you hear caribou news all the time, all the time. They're a very like politically charged topic because a lot of people will attack the oil industry for the habitat degradation in Northern Alberta and in Northern Ontario, where these caribou are living. And then Northern, like the Northwest Territories in the Yukon in the Arctic um, have a lot of mining like a ton of mining and it's like this a little bit of my like environmentalist take on this but it's pretty unregulated like it's a free-for-all up there people can set up mines kind of whenever wherever they feel like it uh including in calving grounds so there's a lot of uh problems there and it involves the indigenous communities a lot because especially up there indigenous people have been living with the caribou for thousands and thousands of years they're hugely important as a food source, for one, because food security in Canada's North is notoriously bad. It's The food prices are super expensive. And uh, so being able to hunt for subsistence is really important for human health. And it's also a culturally important thing to do. Going out and hunting and, and passing on knowledge and building that community is really important. And so the Indigenous communities are very integrated into this um, overall issue of the the decline of the caribou. And very often they get blamed for the decline and people say, oh, it's the hunting, but it's definitely not that so much as it's the immense amounts of mining. I mean, I've done a lot of research projects on this for classes and looking at the news reports of what politicians will say that are just so disrespectful to a whole community that has been hunting and, and living amongst these Animals for, for thousands of years, and basically saying, like, yeah, we don't really care. <laughs> so, yeah, I, basically, the point of this is to say that, like, it's really important to consider, I guess, how the decline of caribou impacts the people. And also, what's really interesting, I, I read this paper talking about how the Bathurst caribou herd, herd, which is in Northwest Territories, travels this one, I guess, a, it's like a river crossing. And they would take that river crossing every year in their migration for time immemorial. And that there's particular indigenous community. Forgive me, I can't remember which one it was. Who would hunt at that particular river crossing? And they'd be there same time every year, year after year, generation after generation. And their reporting on it was like bang on in terms of like what the populations were like, when there were declines, when there weren't. Caribou are known to go through natural population declines every forty to seventy years. This one's definitely not one of those, but um, they do have those fluctuations. And there was a study done basically to confirm what the indigenous communities were saying about their populations to see if this orally transmitted knowledge was accurate. And they looked at tree roots of these paths where the caribou would travel. And on the tree roots, if you cut them in half, kind of like, you know, if you cut a tree, you see the like tree rings, the same thing on the roots. And you could see the scars where the caribou had, there were more caribou, there'd be more scarring in those years that the caribou had traveled through and it like exactly matched up with what people were saying about the population, which I think is amazing and I, it's unfortunate that you have to like prove with Western science that what um, Indigenous knowledge is correct, but I think it's important to mention because I think it, it's another kind of science and it's another kind of knowledge system that's really important to, to management of wildlife. Yeah, it's it's a really interesting issue. And like I said, it's very politically charged because of the industry. And like, there's a lot of stakeholders in the situation. And so it's funny, because like living in Alberta, I mean, it's a very like oil culture and industry culture. So very often... <laughs> I get into heated debates with people about this sort
0: of thing. I mean, like you're an ecologist. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's my job. That's what you do. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, you're supposed to have opinions. That's your job. <laughs> yeah, it's,
1: it's, a, it's a time. I mean, yeah. And the management of caribou populations, too, has been a real challenge because a lot of the solutions for caribou declines are culls of wolves. So they'll cull wolves in especially the boreal forest with, like, drones. And they'll also, they've started, like, culling moose in southern BC because they don't want, like, the moose drawing the wolves up to the caribou. And it's criticized a lot as being a very, like, temporary solution. Like, the wolves are just going to come back and still going to be a problem. So that's another sort of, like political wildlife
0: management issue oh there are so many rabbit holes you can go down
1: <laughs> there's so many i could talk for a long time about caribou in my classes you would think that caribou are the only species in alberta because of how much we talk about them <laughs> there's such a like textbook example of wildlife management because you've got every issue in there i mean the other problem too with uh climate change is it tends to uh, uh increase precipitation when there wouldn't be rain um, and so what ends up happening is it layers like ice over lichen, which is really difficult for the reindeer to get through. So
0: yeah, that's another big problem. So just throw another <laughs> wrench into there. Another log on the <laughs> fire. There's a lot stacked against them in this moment. I guess you have any advice for people that might like want to get involved with helping the caribou? It's a tricky one because most of what I know about
1: caribou research is like done at, you know, there's a lot of stuff done at universities like University of Alberta has so many caribou researchers and... Um, people looking at the traditional knowledge of, of caribou and, and things like that. And my main thing would be, like, vote. <laughs> and please, like, it's it's a political issue. And it's, I, th- I think, like, you can't not get involved in in the politics of it. Like, like I said, it's climate change really hurting them. So whatever you can do to mitigate that and support good climate policy, I think that would be my advice. If you're interested in caribou in particular, I mean... I only know of, like, Canadian organizations. Well, I guess they're not in, like, well, I guess in Alaska you'd have them. But I know Sea Paws um, in Canada does a lot with caribou, and they have a lot of good caribou research available there. Yeah, like I said, I I mostly know the academic, but read up on it. There's a lot of really interesting caribou literature out there. If you're an academic nerd like I am, that's out there. Google Scholar Search and you'll learn so much. (laughs)
0: We've got the groundwork here. We've got yeah. a foundation. Yeah. Um, and then I'm going to release all of the new uh caribou stands. Yeah. <laughs> they're they're amazing animals. They're beautiful and they're
1: very majestic, I think.
0: Oh, yes, they're beautiful. We we can't end the episode without giving them a score for aesthetics. <laughs> what do you give them for aesthetics? I'm gonna give them a nine out of ten
1: because when they're like in the in-between stage of like shedding their winter fur. For their summer coat, they look really like mangy, chirpy, or like when they'll like lose one antler, but they won't lose the other. <laughs> <or anything. laughs> um, but in the rest of the year, they look beautiful. Like in the winter, they're like these beautiful, like kind of whitey coats. Very glamorous looking animals, I would say. Oh, yeah. Yeah. You just gotta catch them in the right time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I-, I think it's like a lot of animals, like red foxes in the summer. Have you ever seen those? They look mangy. I feel so bad for them, and then in the winter they've got this like glorious like
0: Oriel hair,
1: <laughs> like they're just <laughs> shiny. Same thing with
0: Caribou. <laughs> so good I love them <laughs> <laughs> well so that's all of our ratings for today before we get wrapped up and before I let you go I wanted to give you the opportunity to kind of let people know where they can find you and how they can connect with you and also like I know we mentioned it at the top but also how people can listen to beyond blathers because it's really cute and I really <laughs> like it thank you um, yeah you can find me on Twitter at live
1: um, li V-de-b-d-e-b-e-e. or if you just search up my name I will probably come up because I'm pretty sure I'm the only Olivia de Bercier in existence which is convenient <laughs> um, but yeah Beyond Blathers uh, you can find on Spotify or Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts and you can follow us at Beyond Blathers on Instagram or Twitter yeah I think those are, <laughs> that's the best place to find us we have started a merch store so if you like animal stickers we've got those there they're really good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm very excited about them. So yeah, if uh, you're interested, that's all there. But yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled to be on. It's so exciting. This is the first podcast I've ever been on that's not my own. <laughs> yeah, it's been absolutely lovely talking to you. and I, I love listening to the show, especially in quarantine when there's no one here for me to tell
0: animal facts. <laughs> it's like a virtual friendship it's lovely <laughs> well i really appreciate you coming on and telling us all this stuff about caribou i feel like we've learned a lot and gained a deeper <laughs> appreciation for our northern neighbors and our our friends uh, up in the boreal forests so um just thank you so much this has been a lot of fun thank you thank you for having me Thank you all so much for listening, especially if you listened while commuting via sleigh pulled by reindeer led by a shiny red nose. If you liked what you heard, I hope you leave behind some kind words for us in a review on your podcast app of choice. If you'd like to hang out with us online, we're on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Discord. Links to everything will be in the episode description below, along with links to where you can keep up with Olivia and Beyond Blathers. If you have an animal that you'd like to hear us talk about on the show, you can send me an email at ellen at justthezooofus.com. I'd like to thank Maximum Fun for having us on their network alongside the other wonderful shows. Uh, like the ones that you heard promos for earlier today. You can check them out and learn more about the network at MaximumFun.org. And while you're there, consider signing up for a membership to keep us going, along with the rest of the shows on the network. Finally, we'd like to thank Louis Zong for our delightful theme music. That's all for today. Hope everybody has lovely holidays. Thanks. Bye.